Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We begin podcast number 11 in our series on the second half of world history. Welcome back. In podcast number 10, we looked at the age of Napoleon, how and when Napoleon was run off of the continent of Europe, not once but twice. And then we also looked at the age of Romanticism. In this podcast, we're going to keep studying the isms of the day, which sometimes can sound more like diseases than political systems, but we are going to be looking at some political ideologies, all ending with the suffix ism, the isms. So we're going to look at those as Europe moves into the post-Napoleonic world. So we're looking from 1815 and beyond. And then from there, we will move into a brief survey of how these isms were select were impacting a select couple of examples that I'll use to demonstrate the evolution of political thought in the the population of the European continent. The first is arguably one of the most common political ideologies known in the 21st century. However, long predates any of us living listening to this podcast, and that is this term nationalism. There is, in my recording of podcasts, no podcast recording that I would love to get a, a sense from my listeners as to whether when I just said that word nationalism, did immediately in your mind, did you have a negative or positive connotation to that word? Clearly, I ask this class. I ask my classes this, and I'll write the I'll write the term on the board. Nationalism, underline it, turn to them, saying everybody has to vote. Nobody sits on the fence. Nobody uh, does a uh, present but not voting cop out. I want to know nationalism. When I wrote that word down, how many of you have a positive connotation with that word? I see how many hands goes up and then how many negative. More often than not, admittedly, some students are looking at what other students are raising their hands and following suit. But of those students that are staring right at me, God bless them, either staring right at me or staring right at the board, and are not looking to where the other students are going to vote, whether it's positive or negative, it generally tends to fall into the middle of the same number of students thinking it's a positive versus a negative word. Bottom line is, to quickly unpack this, is just to throw out that definition. Nationalism is the strongest political ideology in which a nation, bonded by common language, common customs, and a history, who seek the same form of government. Let me repeat that. It's the strongest political ideology in which which a nation, bonded by a common language, 
common customs, and history who seek the same form of government. That's extremely important, and then this is the reason why we're going to further unpack what this means. First off, to bring this term, even though we're always talking about the period of 1815, again, it even predates this. Nationalism, by and large, is not a bad thing. In fact, I'll argue, we actually need some of it. We, a country, a nation of people cannot exist without it. Nationalism is, if, if we want it, again, the strongest political ideology, we got that. But now let's throw layperson terms on that. And that's really simply put, it's pride in one's country. There's nothing wrong with that. Pride in one's one country, pride in our common language, pride in our customs that we hold dear to us, the nation of people that happen to live in this country, whatever country it may be, who have a common history, and we're seeking roughly the same form of government, the same uh, level of participation from our government, the same level of control, etc. So pride in one's country. So for the students that raised their hand, for my listeners that didn't see anything negative or think anything negative when I said the word nationalism for the first time, that's a healthy understanding of nationalism. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. You need to have some pride. It's worth living for. It's worth maintaining. In fact, George Washington, still to this day, has given the shortest farewell address after he left office or as he was leaving office, the shortest farewell address of any of our 45 presidents to date. One of the two things that was the point of his speech, the first, of course, so George Washington-esque, was thanking the people once again for having faith in him to lead the country. They gave him a considerable amount of power. He has now given it back as he steps down after two terms. Can't say enough about that. For more about Washington, please listen to my podcast on the first half of American history, specifically around the revolutionary revolutionary era and the Constitutional Convention. But the second point that George Washington, President George Washington, pleaded with his people that were listening is, hello, can we get a healthy dose of nationalism in our blood? The problem was is that the citizens of a newly formed United States were too interested in pounding their chest that they were Pennsylvanians, that they were New Yorkers, that they were Georgians, that they were from Maine. They were so hammering in their individuality from the states they came from rather than grabbing one another's hands and forming the bond as Americans. George Washington drove this point home. Please, you've got to come together as one united nation, not taking pride away from your individual states, but we've got to come together as one country, right? And that's again what he, and he even said, if we don't, we're going to set ourselves up for potential attack by a European counterpart who looks at our division and sees weakness. And sadly, his prediction came true with the War of 1812. Great Britain thought the time was ripe, perhaps to reconquer some of the lands lost in the Revolutionary War. What they didn't anticipate is that we quickly could find nationalism, brought it together, and fought as one country. The war ended, and we had our healthy dose of nationalism. Something, again, that George Washington was hoping to prevail upon the American people, not at the cost of war. 
All right. So what about my listeners and what about my students that raised their hands and thought, no, no, nationalism is a negative thing. Where nationalism runs off the rails is when we take that initial definition of nationalism and extend it too far. It's, again, nothing wrong with having pride in one's country. Again, we need it. You need to have, again, pride, something to work for, something to maintain, right? When we take it too far, though, is when we want to attack those people from other countries that don't agree that we are the best country. Listeners, I am not ashamed to say that after traveling to over 20 countries around the world in four continents, many of them more than once, when I came back to the United States, there was almost kind of a kind of a false sense of, of security when I would leave the plane and walk through the jetway into the airport. I wanted my feet to touch American soil, not a building, not an airport, not a jetway. I wanted I so bad, just wanted to leave that plane down a set of stairs onto the concrete tarmac just to be able to square my feet on American soil because I was so proud to be back. And it had nothing to do with any country that I went to, nothing to do against them. I was just glad to be back in my home time, my home territory called America. Nothing wrong with that. Where the problem comes in is if I were to stand on American soil after arriving back from some country or countries around the world, and I express out loud, oh, so great to be back, America, the number one country. And a woman or man is next to me and says, oh, well, I'm actually passing through this airport in the United States because I'm on my way back home to my home country of Canada or Mexico or a country in the continent of Africa, Middle East, Asia, South America, it doesn't matter. And I'm glad you feel that way about America, but my country is better. There's nothing wrong with that person saying it. Where nationalism runs off the rails is when we want to hurt the other person for feeling differently than we do. That's where it goes wrong. That's when it's nationalism taken too far. By way of, of analogy with students, I ask them, for those that care to share it, what is their absolute, absolute favorite dessert? And I'm just going to pick something, of course, prototypical American, apple pie. So I, I tell the students, imagine that you have your dinner and the dishes are cleared away and you're just, you cannot wait to get a, a slice or a piece or a filling of your favorite dessert. Think about how that first bite tastes. Right. We know what that's like. It's like our taste buds just attack that bite of our favorite dessert. But then how do we feel by the last bite? Oh, satisfied. Right. Sometimes we might go for a second piece, a second round. But notice the first bite of that second piece does not have the same effect on us. The first one does, because now we've already had our fill of that dessert. And now I tell them to run with this analogy. Now finish that second piece. And now I give you a third piece and I give you a fourth and a fifth. Eventually, how is that favorite dessert of yours going to taste? It will taste absolutely awful because our body is trying to tell us we are way too much of this food, way too full. Stop. Enough. That's nationalism. Nationalism is that first slice of our dessert. 
Negative nationalism is when we go for that second, third, fourth, et cetera. We don't know where to stop. So this nationalism taken into the 20th century, it was the prevalent ideology in both world wars. It would rise again within the United States after the fall of the Soviet empire on December 25th, 1991. Even when Dr. John J. Mearsheimer out of the University of Chicago said, quote, we shall soon miss the days of the Cold War, end quote. What did he mean by that in terms of nationalism? Well, we'll talk more about that when we get to that podcast about recouping what the world looked like after the Cold War came to a close when the Soviet Union fell. So in terms of nationalism, if nothing more that I'd like you to take away with, again, is that definition, I'll repeat it for a final third time, the strongest political ideology in which, in which a nation bonded by a common language, customs, and history who seek the same form of government. Please know, too, that sometimes in terms of when we're talking about that term, um, a nation, Please note, too, that a nation is not the same as a country, and it's not the same as a state. Nation is a group of people that has nothing necessarily to do with geography. Nations are people, such as Kurds in Iraq and Turkey. They're a nation of one people, but they have no place to call home. In other words, they don't have a country. Native Americans is another example within the United States. Sure, they have territories that the American government carved out for them, but it's not their own country, not the way it was in prior to 1492. Gypsies is another example. The Basques in northern Spain and southern France living in the Pyrenees Mountains. Sure, they have their provinces, but they have actually no country to call home. That is, as I say, is a distinct difference. A country is a geographical term. I take all the Irish out of Ireland. Just take every human being out of Ireland. It's a completely empty island that's still Ireland. On a map of the world, it's still Ireland. On a map of Western Europe, that's still Ireland. It has nothing to do with the fact, per se, that nobody's living there right now. That's, again, a that's what a country is. A state is a political carving up of an existing country. When a country gets large enough, that the people that live throughout it don't necessarily have the same needs in the northwestern part of that country as in the southeastern part. They carve out states to have a local government more responsive to the people's needs. So please note, too, that sometimes you can tell a lot about a country just by its name. Countries in Western and Eastern Europe and Asia that have a, a suffix IA, uh, Armenia, Albania, Romania, the IA when it's pronounced, I separate from A, generally tend, this is again rules of thumb, it's not an exact science, but a rule of thumb is countries that have the suffix that end with IA tend to be Christian. Countries that have the suffix stan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, tend to be non-Christian Muslim-based countries. So again, just to some rules of thought, uh, rules of thumb, excuse me, that one can just store in the back of their minds when they're looking at a world map where they hear about countries going to war with one another. If you hear countries of stand versus stand, it's generally going to be maybe a political war, but you're going to have a, a religious uh, element in that conflict as well. If it's a country ending in IA versus IA, you might, you might not have a religious element. Country of IA going to war with country, S-T-A-N is a suffix. 
it may be political, but if it's also going to be religious, it's liable to get far more deadly because it's not just a political war, it's a religious war. So that is that term nationalism. Moving on to our second of the three isms we're going to talk about in this podcast, the second one is liberalism. Liberalism is any group or liberals are any group who challenges the accepted norm of political, social, or religious values. So liberalism is the group that not is necessarily always seeking change, but they have no objection to questioning, to challenging the accepted norms in a given society, generally when it affects the three greatest areas that impact human life, the political, the social, and the religious values. They believe in the value of a written constitution. You might say, well, no, that's age old, Chris. There's no way that's liberalism defined because if they want change, we've had constitutions for hundreds of years now. No, 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 no. We are back in the early 1800s. Written constitutions, by and large, are still relatively new. With that impact of written constitution, liberalism tends to embrace it. In terms of the economy, they believe in this burgeoning idea of a capitalist economy, an economy where, in the post-industrialized world, that individuals, individuals are the large motivation to a successfully humming economy when the consumers have a choice of what to purchase, capitalism. That government, again, has more laissez-faire, it's hands-off, allowing the economy to hum based on the motivated needs of the population. So that's liberalism. Again, I'll define that a second time. It's any group who challenges the accepted norm of political, social, or religious values. So let's juxtapose that one to conservatism. Conservatism defined is generally it consists of monarchs, landed aristocrats, and the established church in that region who abhor the ideas of written constitutions and abhor the ideas of representative governments. So it's clearly easy way to define the serious, serious differences between liberalism and conservatism. More often than not, which model works the the best is not any one extreme form of those models. Rather, it would be some compromise somewhere in between. So in that, again, as we say, we discussed nationalism, liberalism, and conservatism. Now, let's take a quick snapshot of how those three systems are playing out in continental Europe by looking at international relations after 1815. Ladies and gentlemen, when Napoleon was run off the continent, not the first, but a second time, all countries, leaders worth their salt, as well as the population that was up in current events, was taking a massive breather sigh of relief. But the question still loomed. Who are the other Napoleons that haven't quite been uncovered yet? Who are the other Napoleons in whose countries that are just yearning, looking for the opportunity to grab the mantle of power and run roughshod with it at the tune of tens of thousands of lives? Napoleon's reputation and the fact that he could garner power the way he did terrified many people on the European continents and people throughout the world. 
As a result, the Concert of Europe was established so that there would provide a medium, a, a venue for the major political powers in Europe to be able to engage in conversation, to ward off any tensions building between two or more countries with the specific goal of trying to maintain what we call a balance of power. So international relations after 1815, the major, major milestone was the establishment again of the Concert of Europe. You might say, wait a minute, Chris, go back and talk about that definition one more time. Yes, it was an organization that was established for political talks between leaders of major European powers and even minor powers. The goal was to maintain, again, this concept or idea of the balance of power. Should country A acquire a brand new type of weapon system, come clean with it. How many of these are you put? Are you obtaining? How many are you going to create or buy? Why do you feel the need for this new weaponry? Where are you putting this around your country? Find, talk about this at the diplomatic table so it doesn't have to get resolved in the battlefield. That's the point of this. Now, some of you listeners are giving me the hairy eyeballs and wait a minute, that sounds very, very uh, similar to maybe the United Nations today. You're spot on. The concert of Europe eventually will fail. It will be replaced by other mediums along the same line until eventually it gets to the League of Nations, which will also fail because of the outbreak of World War II, and then finally succeeding with our current medium for political discussions, that being the United Nations. So if nothing more from this podcast, you're learning again that the United Nations as a concept is nothing new. However, what I do want you to think about is of all these political mediums that have been established, starting with the Concert of Europe, why did all the predecessors to the modern UN fail? And why has the UN lasted and quote unquote been so successful since its inception in the late 1940s? And that's what we'll discuss as these podcasts about continue. So how does that affect just a quick example of some some of these countries on the Eurasian continent. First off, France would be returned to a nation in good standing as a constitutional monarchy. In other words, the French people, you want your king, you want your queen, have at it. We have no problem with that, said the other European powers, but your king is going to be limited by a constitution. Fearing that he would have the same reins put on his power, King Ferdinand VIII in Spain ruled as an autocrat and refused to be have his powers put in check by this blasted document called the Constitution. As a result, he ruled as an autocrat from 1814 to 1833. And the longer that he was in power, the more nervous the other countries around Spain were becoming. As a result, the European powers that be allied amongst themselves and ganged up on Spain to begin in 1820 what became known as the Spanish Revolution. And rather than get into the minutia of that revolution and how it played out, I want to focus on the end of it. Because when the Spanish Revolution came to a close, the key to that successful close of that revolution is that even though the European powers ganged up against Spain, they made it clear 
that they were not against the Spanish people. They were not against the Spanish history, heritage, societal, or religious norms. That wasn't their point. Those countries were going to war against the Spanish government, not the Spanish people. As a result, when the revolution came to a close, not one European power acquired any land at the expense of Spain, either on the European continent uh, proper or from any of Spain's colonies around the world. That is extremely important. And the reason being is because when no one country is going to swipe at some free and easy land because a country was defeated, what that does is it robs the Spanish people of feeling a sense of loss. And it also robs any potential for the desire for revenge by the Spanish people later on. It was such a momentous point in, in a positive way. It was such a hallmark of the effectiveness of the concert of Europe. Sadly, ladies and gentlemen, this is a practice that would be abandoned literally right after it was tried for the first time. In Russia, take a quick glance at the other side of the Eurasian continent, Tsar Alexander I turned away from enlightenment and romanticism ideas and resorted to a policy of autocracy and suppression. So same playbook playing out here as in Spain. However, we're on the other side of the Eurasian continent. What happens this time? Well, Russia, one of Russia's greatest assets to its defense is its massive size. To put again into comparison, Russia is 1.7 times larger than the United States. All of the Eurasian, all of the European powers that combine are still going to be dwarfed by the size of Russia. As a result, they weren't able to send their military arms in far enough to try to suppress the reign of Alexander I. So does that mean it's a complete loss? Well, in the sense of turning Alexander I away, yes, it was. Then why am I shedding light on this? Because the dominoes were falling. Autocracy was not going to become any easier for Alexander I to try to instill on the Russian people. Why? Because secret societies were forming in rebellion as the Russian people learned more and more about the successes of political revolutions in America, as well as those in Western Europe. My point being is that you see part of the reason why future autocrats and future dictators, the moment that they come to power, they want to cut their people off from any exposure to news outside of the country's boundaries. Why? Because ideas travel. Ideas are like fire, that the moment they get lit, one never knows when they're going to be extinguished. So the best way to suppress your own people is to cut off their lines of communication. In France specifically, we see the reign of King Charles X reigning from 1824 to 1830. Even though he was now reigning under a constitutional monarchy, that didn't mean 
that he was going to take that sitting down and hands down. Absolutely not. He slowly tried to restore pre-revolutionary royal benefits to his own family as well as to the landed wealth. You say, okay, Kristen, what's all that talk for? This just went down the, down the drain. No, it didn't. Because middle-class laborers prevailed in putting pressure on the parliament to bring Charles in. As a result, what happened to Charles X? He abdicated the throne and fled the country. This was a success, listeners. It was very much a success of this idea of the new isms of the day, these new political ideologies taking root within a population of people on the Eurasian continent. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com, and email me with any questions that you might have or book recommendations. If you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.